Hello, Podcast Nation. You are listening to my autobiography, Tina Lives, written and read by me, Tina. Who am I? Nobody. But when asked the simplest questions in life, like, where are you from? There was never a simple answer. So I decided to jot the answers down in a book about growing up hippie, surviving the South, and getting the hell out, which is why Tina Lives. Episode 3, Summer of 1975, The Heartbreak Hotel. There's a place for us Somewhere a place for us There were two houses to choose from, and Gorton let me decide which one he would buy. The first one was in the black neighborhood on a street that reminded me of Cleveland because of the grassy median that ran down the middle of the boulevard. The interior glittered with gold-plated fixtures while the floors were plush with shaggy brown carpeting. And the people who lived there wrapped their furniture in plastic just like the old lady who sheltered us on the night of the Cleveland fire. This slightly fancy place would have been a step up into a world that neither Gorton nor I were accustomed to, and I felt excited at the prospect of living there. However, it was too small. I couldn't imagine Gorton's big personality or his eccentricities being contained in this tiny square of a house. But mostly, the truth was, that I didn't want to live alone with Gorton. I could already feel the force of our personas reflecting off one another, creating friction, clashes, and claustrophobia. So I chose the property that had nine bedrooms. The nine-bedroom house was a two-story on top of a hill in a neighborhood called Stiff Station. I think Gorton was happy with my decision because, after all, his main goal in life was to build community, and you needed lots of bedrooms to do that. Gorton portentously named our new home the Heartbreak Hotel. No one from Oak Street moved in with us, not even Sue. She and Gorton had broken up for good this time, and I saw less and less of her. She didn't disappear completely, but she did have a new life, and so did I. The occupants of the Heartbreak Hotel were me, Gorton, and four other people that I did not know. There was Andy, a lawyer from New York City who worked for ACORN, an acronym for Association of Community Organizations for Reform Now. Shotzi was a teenage counselor who worked at the Crisis Center. And then there was a woman named Kathy, her daughter Joey, who was younger than me, and Kathy's asshole know-it-all boyfriend, Craig. 
The Heartbreak Hotel was not cozy. It clamored upwards towards the sky and sometimes felt haunted with stern evangelical spirits. Most of the windows faced north, which contributed to the dim ambience of the place, and all the rooms were sequestered away like secrets from the past. Gorton set up an office right off the kitchen where he erected his floor-to-ceiling collection of books. He situated his grant-writing chair, red, in the middle of the room, which he kept very dark, always. It was eerie to see him sitting alone with a legal pad, ghost-like and tired, with a halo of cigarette smoke wafting around his head. It was in that room, not long after I turned 14, and was desperate to quell the contradiction of restless misery and boredom, that I found his corncob pipe and a bag of pot. It must have been a forgotten stash, because the baggie was soft and dusty with the sheddings of the concrete bricks that held up his bookshelf. Before that moment in time, of what would become a major metamorphosis in my life, I was known to be a rancorous pain in the ass toward all the pot and cigarette smokers in my life, which was just about everybody. My stance was more of a contrarian than that of a person with strong convictions. The tie stick and blotter acid anomaly registered as a bad dream rather than a gateway to the land of the high where all my tribe resided. So on this day of misery, just for the plain old heck of it, I filled the bowl with some dried up pot and took a few hits. It may have been seconds, it may have been minutes, but soon enough, my brain started swirling and my heart started beating hard. The unfamiliar sensations and apparent lack of control over my internal organs freaked me out. My ears were ringing with every noise that had now become amplified and the living room walls towered above me like creepy trees, breathing and pulsating. My body felt small and crumbly, and then large and overanimated. My eyes bulged out of my skull, while at the same time barely open. I had a dry, sticky mouth and lips that stuck to my teeth. I started to get very paranoid and wondered who was going to come home first. Would I be able to talk or act normal? I did not think so, and that scared the shit out of me. Even though we were hippies, or variations thereof, I was pretty sure, but not certain, that I was not allowed to smoke pot. Just as I was trying to sneak away to my bedroom, Kathy and her preteen daughter, Joey, came home and started making dinner. Kathy stood at the kitchen table chopping vegetables, and Joey sat on a chair next to her. If it had been Craig the asshole, or Andy the lawyer, 
the two people I couldn't tolerate, I would have just walked right past them without saying a word. But that's not the kind of relationship I had with Kathy and Joey. We were a bit like family, so I would have to acknowledge them. I walked into the room as if the floor were made of rubber and wrestled awkwardly with a chair. After what seemed like an hour of trying to get myself seated, I greeted them with a salutation that stuttered out of my mouth in a syncopated drone. I couldn't be sure that I had just spoken English, but their acknowledgement assured me that I had. In order to stay tethered to the real world, I focused my attention on Kathy while she meticulously chopped the vegetables. Her skill and technique was so intriguing that I fell immediately into a relaxing stare, transfixed by her beautifully feminine hands. Kathy didn't seem to notice that I was high, and that is what I loved about her. She lived in a state of quiet oblivion, which is probably how she ended up with such a butthole boyfriend like Craig. Joey, on the other hand, was the opposite of her mom, observant and nosy. She knew damn well that I was high, and she started poking at me with her snotty inquisition. Why are you talking so funny? What's wrong with your eyes? Are you sick? Are you stoned? I tried my best to glare at her, but my eyes were bloodshot, my comprehension soggy, and my lips couldn't form a proper smart-ass reply. My best option was to get the hell out of there before Kathy touched down to earth. Stumbling around the table as if I were separated from my body, I grunted at Joey, hoping that she would get the tacit message I was sending her. I will get you later, you little cretin. Once my bedroom door closed, the mystery and the magic of smoking pot finally revealed itself to me. I put on a Stones album, sat on my bed, and started rocking back and forth to the music. I rocked myself into a meditative state, one that I had never known before. Every note of music was like experiencing the actual cells in my body. The sensation resembled what it might feel like to fall down a rabbit hole and land in a warm, maternal place. I couldn't believe how peaceful it was, and even more spectacular when I realized that I was deep inside myself. I liked it there, and that is where I was going to stay. I closed my eyes and watched the continuous loop of images and emotions that came rushing at me in flashes. They would ting and tatter with no harm done and then just fall to the wayside like the white petals of a rose. Big stuff was going on inside of me and the only thing I had to do was get up and flip the record over. The pop thing was working, and sequestering myself into me was my new state of being. Gorton tried to rescue me from my self-imposed isolation because he didn't know how happy and safe I was to be there. He wanted me to get involved in a program that he and Shotzi were creating at the crisis center called The Cornerstone. 
It was going to be a community center for the teenagers in the poor neighborhood. Gorton asked if I would come to the meetings and contribute a teen's point of view. What do teens want? What do teens need? And I was honored to do so. I started riding my bike over to the crisis center and sat in on some of the very long meetings from which I only remember two things, what a great boss Gorton was and three ring binders. There were a lot of them. I had never witnessed Gorton in his true element before and watching him work gave me insight into why so many people loved him. He exuded the strength of a great leader and was very diplomatic. Everyone had a voice and all opinions were valid and taken into consideration, even mine. He seemed to mirror people's potential and reflected all they had to offer. He shined the light and then helped them find their way as long as they were ready. He wasn't really like that at home. When he came walking through the door, you could feel the presence of an illuminating star. But then he would seclude himself in his room. We, the roommates, got the exhausted, spent shell of a man who needed time to replenish. And that was okay once I realized that's why I didn't know him very well. It was occurring to me that if you wanted to have a meaningful relationship with Gorton, you'd have to work on a project with him. And so it was in those meetings that I felt like he and I were truly connected for the very first time. He always responded to my comments with an excited, wide-eyed enthusiasm, as if I had just said the most remarkable thing, which maybe I did, but I doubted. I think he just loved his job and input. But the cornerstone did not survive. The kids for whom it was intended used, abused, and tore the place apart. They needed more structure and discipline than the hippie ethos of free to be, you and me. And in a way, I felt like I let Gorton down. I had not taken the bull by the horns and become a powerful player in his dream. I floundered and failed at one awesome opportunity, which could have possibly changed the direction of my life. But just like the kids in the neighborhood, I needed structure and discipline, and I wasn't getting any. Gorton believed in who I could be and ignored who I really was. The only thing I took away from the cornerstone was heartbreak and a name change. Chris. An unkindly girl who worked at the crisis center had a boyfriend whose quiet beauty reminded me of a golden field of swaying hay, and his lack of personality was his personality. He was forever on my mind, and secretly, I was smitten with him. He appeared unannounced one day at the door of the Heartbreak Hotel, and after an hour or two into his ambiguous visit, 
I found myself slow dancing with him to Elton John's album, Blue Moves. The dance led to a kiss, my first kiss, a real kiss. The kind with tongue and gentle lips that say I am here for nothing else but this. He never explained. He barely said a word. He just led and I followed. And all I really knew about him was his name was Austin. We had several more visits just like this to which I began to look forward to, kissing and dancing without words, swaying together softly, embraced in some kind of emotional abyss, until the day without warning or explanation, he disappeared. I didn't want to be devastated. I had no reason to be. He never claimed to be my boyfriend, and he never promised me anything. He came and went like the weather, and I should have taken it for just that. But the mystery of our tenderness, the first in my life, and then his disappearance crushed me. Somehow, I thought I needed him. In retaliation, I cut my hair by my own hand and changed my name to Chris. It sounded hard and indestructible. Unlike Tina, who twinkled with naivete and was forever stoic and brokenhearted. Shift in disguise Let's the world wonder why We'll put our trust into your hands Smash our precious and our